My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. If we didn't had a chance to uh, to meet yet, um, and if you're new to our church, you should know we, we've been in the Book of Luke now for uh, quite a long time. Uh, we're all the way up to chapter 14. Uh, we we believe in teaching Scripture verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Uh, we we want to know what the Bible says. Uh, we, we don't want to be tempted to pick and choose or to skip over things that God might want us to see in his word. So, so we go through it all. And this isn't one of those things that's necessarily right or wrong. We, we, just, we believe that, that this method of teaching and studying his word will produce the strongest and most faithful disciples. We feel like that's where God is leading us and what he's asking us uh, to do. So that's what we do. We do it in here and in every other environment. In this building, if you have kids anywhere in this backside of this building from, you know, elementary all the way up through through high school, they are talking about these same verses and very similar takeaways that are tailored for them. And that, that way this week you can sit down at a table with them and, and open our app to the table talk and have discussions with your family about how we're applying God's word to our lives. These verses are going to be uh, featured every single day in our daily devos, just drilling down a little bit further and studying his word, how to apply it to your life. And in our groups this week, studying the same stuff. You know, what, what does this mean for us? How do we apply it to, to our lives as we learn to, 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 again, grow in our faith and our knowledge of him? Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's what we're trying to do. You might think, well, how do you, how do you love him with your mind? That's what we're talking about here. The, the knowledge of his word. And, and here's what's awesome. You know, you, you hear about our, our City 7 every single week, those seven foundational truths. We've also developed a City 7 core values. These are something you'll be hearing about more and more in the coming weeks and months. You, you've heard some of this terminology before, but there are a lot of both and statements. Like, we want to be a church of grace and truth, of word and spirit. One of them is hearts and minds. We don't want to just love them with our hearts. We want to love them with our minds. And here's what's been amazing in my life. As I've kind of dove into his, his word and studying it and, 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 and even teaching it, the more and more I've learned to love him with my mind, the more my heart has come alive. It's been life-changing. Because a right understanding of his word, uh, uh, growing in, in our knowledge of God, produces in us worship of him, faithfulness to him, love of him. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to listen to more of the story of Jesus and, and some of his teachings in, in front of the Pharisees. And today he's talking about pride and humility. Pride and humility. You ever been humbled? A better way to ask that question is, have you ever been humiliated? It's fun, right? There, there's, I don't know about you, but there, there's, there's nothing more humiliating than falling down in public as an adult. I mean, I don't recommend it. If you haven't done it, just take my word for it. I've done it twice. Uh, and there was, it was a long time ago. You know, I'm not that old. I was younger back then, and I, I, it still happened to me two different times. Once was on an icy curb, and I fell into this wet, slushy, frigid mess right in front of Carino's, in front of God and everybody else. Like, they all saw it. And then another time was even worse. It was in, in, in Sam's, and I don't even know how it happened. I just know I slipped, and I fell. And I felt so hard, you know, my hand slapped the floor. So like everyone turned and looked at me and I made it worse 
I made it worse by jumping up and yelling, I fell. <laughs> yeah, I said that as if it wasn't obvious enough. So, so, so life has a way of, of humbling you, doesn't it? It, it just does. It happens. And, and today we're going to learn that's, that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 7. If you don't, it'll be on the screen. And uh, if you have your app there, you can open that to our message notes. And everything is there for you. The scriptures, the, the fill-in-the-blank points, any quotations we use, it's all there. It's a good way to stay kind of plugged in and uh, paying attention. All right. Would you guys stand as we read God's word today, just in honor of, uh, of the word of the Lord? And we'll start in verse 7, and we'll, I'll read part now, and we'll come back to some more in a little bit. When Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The hosts will come and say, give this person your seat, then you'll be embarrassed. You'll have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he'll come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you'll be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humble, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then he turned to, the, to his host. When you put on a luncheon or banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors for they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then, at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. You guys can have a seat. We're going to pause right there. So we have Jesus at this banquet with the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the religious leaders. You remember two weeks ago, we talked about the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus. And he, you know, they accused him of, of, of sinning by, by healing on the Sabbath. But now he, he's got their attention and he's totally turning the tables on them. The, the, the dinner kind of falls silent and he confronts, as he likes to do with the Pharisees, their pride and their hypocrisy. He, he just never wastes an opportunity and, and he talks to the guests first, and then he turns to the host, and he gives him a little bit too. So th this dinner, it was something we, we got to know, we, we have to understand the, the culture back in those days. We, we don't really have a concept of what was going on here, but it, it was customary for a well-known uh, teacher to attend these banquets and, and have discussions with people or give lectures. And typically, you'd have maybe like a U-shaped table with the the, the most honored, the, the host kind of being in the middle, and then, and then the most honored guest who is left and right. Sometimes it was a collection of tables, but, but it always worked this way. You had the host, he's the most honored one. Then you have the honored guest, and then it kind of trickles on down to less and less and less honor according to what seats you were in. And in this case, Jesus apparently noticed as they were going to sit down that there was kind of a, a clamoring, like a scramble for the, the, the highest seats, the seats of the most honor. You see, social status was important in those days, kind of like today, right? I mean, it, it, was, it was everything. And, and these kinds of events were how you, you proved where you stood in, on, that, in that, social, uh, on that social ladder. So all these dudes were, were clamoring for a seat at the head of the table. There weren't assigned seats. That would have been easier, right, if the host just like, all right, you sit there, you sit there. That's not how it worked. You, you were supposed to know your place. You, you're supposed to know which seat to get in. 
You know what that's right? What that's like, right? Like when, when you go to a dinner, especially with people you may not know that well or family that you don't like that much, you know, you're like, you don't want someone else telling you where to sit. You want to choose. Like maybe you think about, you know, Thanksgiving or Easter or whatever. Like you don't want to get stuck next to maybe you have like a, a peepaw, you know, that smacks and there's probably food going to fall out of his mouth at some point, you know. You may have to even give him a sip of his juice. Or maybe you have a, an aunt that asks way too personal questions in front of everyone or Maybe you have an uncle that wants to get into flat earth discussions or whatever it is, you know. You, you don't want someone else telling you where to sit down. You, you want to be able to choose. It, this is hard to overstate, right? Like, status was everything. And these banquets were a barometer of your status. It was all about a, a new word I learned this week. I like learning new words. It's called reciprocity. Reciprocity. You scratch my back. I'll scratch yours. What, what can you do for me? See, see, this was a, a gift and obligation system that it's insane to think about, but it tied every person together. From, from the emperor of Rome all the way down to like the outskirts, the villages or whatever, every single person was tied together in this like intricate web of social relations. And so, you know, apart from just your family members or a close friend or something, there was no such thing as just a free gift. Every gift given had strings attached to it. So what Jesus is doing here is not just kind of throwing a kink in their, their system. Like he's completely toppling their world view. It would have sounded like craziness to them. This is another appearance of God's upside down kingdom showing how God's kingdom is always completely counter-cultural. His ways are not our ways. Jesus says, listen, be careful just practically speaking, this whole thing could backfire on you. You're trying to get the seat at the head of the table. You might end up getting embarrassed because somebody else more important than you is going to come in. You're going to have to take that, that walk of shame. So this, this one that assumed, and you know what they say, must head to the last seat. He's humiliated. The walk of shame. The smarter thing, Jesus says, is to take the last seat, right? Rush to the last seat, then you might get promoted. The, the, the mention of shame and embarrassment, again, very, very important in this culture. Honor and shame were key issues of a person's identity, their worth, their character. I mean, it was a big, big deal. So you think you're something, somebody running up to the best seat, and then you have to take the walk of shame to the last table. But don't you just love that idea, right? Someone like getting put in their place that thinks too much of themselves. Like we all have a little bit of that in us. And I think Jesus would say to us today, not so fast, my friend. Because you remember the rule. In Scripture, when, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, guess who else he's talking to? He's talking to us. He's talking to you and to me. Then in verse 11, he quotes directly from Proverbs uh, chapter 25, verse 6. He says, For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Because we know pride is, is condemned over and over and over again in Scripture. You've heard them. Pride comes before a what? A fall. This is another upside-down kingdom principle here. You, you humble yourself, you're going to be exalted. You exalt yourself, you're going to be humble. The first will be last, the last will be first. And so Jesus then turns his attention to the host. The host didn't have to, you know, clamor for a seat at the table. Why? He already had the best seat. 
But Jesus doesn't leave him out. He turns to this guy and he tells him, well, why are you only inviting people that can do something for you? Rich people, like you, this is all about you and your own self-promotion. Why not invite and serve people that can't repay you, that can do nothing for you? He said, you know, the best hospitality is given. It's not exchanged. He's saying, this, this, is, this isn't real hospitality. So again, you have to imagine, he kind of, he kind of breaks the atmosphere again. He, he makes this dinner party just a little bit awkward. There might have been some silence. And then this guy, verse 15. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, what a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. All right, so, so you got to understand what's happening here. This is hilarious to me, right? There's always one of these guys at every, you know, event or dinner or hanging out with people, whatever. You know the guy that just says the, the, the wrong thing at the wrong time? Kind of makes it awkward for everybody else. This, this is what's happening here. And it reminded me of, you remember Christmas vacation, right? And they're, they're at Christmas Eve and they're sitting around the table and Clark tells the kids, you know, we spotted, you know, Santa on the radar. And what does Uncle Eddie say? Cousin Eddie. Yeah, he says, you serious, Clark? Right? And everyone gives him that look like, are you kidding me right now? That's kind of what's happening because he, he kind of provokes Jesus here again. He should have kept his mouth shut. And we got to understanding, we got to understand really what he, he's saying by, by saying this. He, you know, good thing we're going to be at the banquet table, right? When in God's kingdom, the Pharisees believed in life after death, uh, uh, of course, and they, they kind of saw the, the, the future resurrection as, as sitting at a table in a banquet. This is kind of a word picture for them, like a feast in heaven. And of course, all of these Pharisees, that their whole thing is about the most honor and getting the best seat at the table, they assume, they assume they're going to be there. But what they don't realize is that this banquet feast, this feast in heaven, is the feast of the Lamb. And the one who is in the honored seat is the one in front of them that they consider to be a blasphemer and a heretic. And what this guy is saying to Jesus' face is, good thing we're going to be there, but you're not. Can you imagine the nerve? But was Jesus offended? No. No. What does he do? He tells a story. He tells a parable. And what we got to understand about parables is Jesus, first of all, is the best storyteller ever, right? He's a master communicator. And what he's doing with these parables is he takes a situation that in that culture, in that time, in context, these people would know exactly what he's talking about. And then he kind of marries it alongside with, with some kind of spiritual truth or a kingdom principle to kind of bring some clarity to something about God's kingdom. And that's what he does here, and he does it absolutely beautifully. In verse 16, he replies with this story. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I have just bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five pairs of oxen. I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. So, again, a little context so that, that, that we're understanding this the way the Pharisees would at the time. 
These banquets, again, were a huge deal. They were very elaborate, very expensive. They were planned a long time in advance. You would have thought it was like an honor to be invited to one of these things. It was a big, big deal. You planned your life around it, even bigger than, than a wedding. Think of it more like, you know, you, you got invited to this banquet at the governor's mansion or something like that. Like you, you would plan your life around it. It would be an honor. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I get to go to this thing. This is kind of what it was. And when the day came, the meal would be prepared. They would send word out that dinner's ready, right? They'd kind of ring the, the dinner bill, people, dinner bell, people come in and they eat. So in this parable, the food's ready, guests invited, but then the unthinkable happened. No one shows up. They all give excuses. This would have been, again, kind of ridiculous sounding to the Pharisees because no one would do this. It just wouldn't, wouldn't happen. They make excuse after excuse, and, and, and they would know that no one invited to this extravagant dinner by a wealthy host would refuse to come, let alone everybody. It would have seemed like a joke, a joke without a punchline. It just wouldn't happen. But Jesus isn't joking. Again, he's a brilliant storyteller. So what does he do? He, he chooses the flimsiest of excuses to make it even more ridiculous, right? I mean, it, it, he could have said, you know, one guy said, well, my family was murdered. I kind of got a lot on my plate today. You know, I can't make it. That might make more sense, right? Or I got COVID. Uh, but he doesn't choose that. He says, I bought a field and got to go look at it. Can you imagine somebody not showing up to your, your wedding because they need to look at some dirt? It makes no sense. I, I just bought some oxen, need to test them out. The last one's my favorite. I just got married. Actually, that's, that's a pretty good one, right? It's like, you know, I'd love to come, but you know how, you know how she gets sometimes, you know? I didn't run it by her first. We didn't get it on the calendar. I could come, but it's going to cost me. You know, it's not worth it. This one in particular would have been super laughable to the Pharisees because in that culture, women did not dictate to their husbands what they could or couldn't do. Also known as the good old days. Am I, am I right? <laughs> All right, I'm done. Uh, by the way, re-engage our marriage class started this week, so I'm not allowed to talk about that anymore. Talk like that. So you can imagine the, the host is not going to be happy. This, this banquet was supposed to bring him honor, and, and here he is getting dishonored by the people that were invited. These excuses. I heard this definition of an excuse this week. An excuse is a, the skin of a reason that's stuffed with a lie. The skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. And it's also illustrating just gross mishandling of priorities. And again, it's easy to cast judgment on that, but what about, what about you? What about your life? When it comes to God, his kingdom, your life, what flimsy excuses do you come up with? He goes on, verse 21. The servant returned, told his master what they had said. His master was furious and said, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the cripple, the blind, and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, there's still room for more. So his master said, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. For none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my 
banquet. All right, this is a big moment in, in the story because at this point, the cat is out of the bag. The, the Pharisees have to be realizing like what he's saying. This isn't just an hy- a hypothetical story. He, he's driving the point down directly at the Pharisees. He's telling them, listen, you aren't getting in. This, this banquet feast in heaven, you're not going to be there. To their face. I mean, no wonder they ended up killing him, right? He just told them they're not going to be at the, at the feast. Even though, God, you, know, you think about the way these banquets work again. You send invitations out to the invited guests. When the meal's ready, notification is sent out to the guests. Come eat, Right? Well, God has been pleading with Israel for for centuries. Um, The invited guest to this feast, his feast in his kingdom, was the Jewish nation. The invitation went out through the prophets of Israel speaking of the the coming Messiah. Like, listen, he's coming. And here's the signs you'll know he's coming. Like, it's, it's happening. Then you have John the Baptist who shows up preparing the way. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The kingdom is here. He's saying, listen, dinner's ready. Come eat. But most of Israel, especially the religious leaders, they reject the invitation. They come up with ridiculous excuses. So what does the gracious host do? He says, y'all are out. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. These are sinners Jesus came for, the the tax collector, the the outcast. Go to the country lanes, outside the hedges. He's referring to Christ's invitation of salvation outside of of the, the nation of Israel to the Gentiles. That's us. He says, tell anyone, come. We're all invited. Here's the point. If you're a Jesus follower, you've got to be humble. Humility is, is the key. That's the first step in your way into the kingdom. Your way to the table is through humility. If we're going to be a Christian, if we're going to wear his name as Christian, little, little Christ, we're emulating him, right? We, we need to, to be modeling ourselves after the picture of humility in the life of Jesus. And you know as well as I do, humility is grossly lacking in our, our country, our culture, even in our churches. So I have some takeaways for us today, three points to help us apply this. The first is humility is inevitable. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of, of when. Jesus would say, listen, it's better to humble yourself than to be humbled. Some of us, like the Pharisees, man, we are so wrapped up in ourselves, so wrapped up in our own pride. And pride is a, an absolute sickness. It's a disease that eats away at our, at our souls, at our spirits, at our ability to hear from God. Pride is, is the deadliest of all the sins because it's the one that leads to the other sins. It's, it's the root of the bad fruit. At its root, it says, listen, I don't want God to be God. I am God. There's nothing worse. 
It was pride that led to Lucifer's fall from heaven. It was pride that led Adam and Eve to to eat the fruit. Pride was the sin of the Pharisees, and, and guess what? It's ours too. It is in our sin nature. And you're like, me? Surely not me. Yes, yes, you. We are all prone to pride. Isn't this a funny thing? Pride is so, so, so easy to see in somebody else, isn't it? It's like you can feel it. But it's almost impossible to see in the mirror. You can't see it. That's why it's so, so dangerous. That's the scary part. It's at the root of everything wrong with us, and we can't see it. See, there's a reason that Jesus followed up this teaching on humility with talking about the, the parable of the, of the banquet. Last week, Clayton talked about narrow is the road, right? Narrow is the door that, that leads to salvation. He's saying a heart that's just bloated with pride can't squeeze through it. Why? Because a prideful person doesn't see his need for God. He doesn't see the problem with his own sinfulness. He doesn't need a savior. And one thing we know about God is he is committed to humbling the proud and exalting the humble. So Jesus tells us, listen, it's inevitable. You're going to bow now or you will bow later, but you will bow. Humble yourself right. Humble yourself in this life or one day in front of his throne of judgment, you will be humbled. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you wait till then, it's too late. Paul is an amazing example of, of this whole pride and humility thing. You look at the change in his life, formerly known as Saul, when he was, eight, he was a Pharisee, thinking, you know, he's, he's doing the Lord's work, hunting down Christians, persecuting the, the first church. But what happens to him? He meets somebody. Jesus, on that road to Damascus, humbles him. Strikes him blind. Completely transforms his life. A 180. Paul found humility. And listen to what he writes in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that come from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Listen, and I am the worst of them all. That's Paul saying that. Who gives us two thirds of our New Testament. He's calling himself the worst of all sinners. You see the, the, the amazing, beautiful balance there. I'm the worst of them all, but God had mercy on me. So that in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. There it is again. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul had this beautiful humility where he, he acknowledges his own sin. 
but at the same time knows where he stands with God. And there's confidence that, that comes from that. He, he knows that he's fully justified before God, even though the same is true with us. If you're a believer, you've committed your life to Christ, you follow Jesus, you may still have sin in your life, you struggle with things from time to time, you're not perfect, right? But right now, before God, in his eyes, you are fully justified. That means, as Colossians 1 says, that you stand before him holy and blameless without a single fault. Even that, even imagining that, that you stand before a holy God and he sees the righteousness, righteousness of Jesus, that's a humbling thought. Paul understood what the Pharisees didn't. The way into the kingdom isn't through self-promoting pride, but through self-effacing humility and acknowledging that you are a wretched sinner in need of grace. Some of us don't think our sin is very bad, and we must not think God is very holy. See, humility isn't just acknowledging what you're not. It's recognizing whose you are. Remember, he, he told the host to invite people that can't do anything for him, right? Not in some way to promote themselves. Jesus is the host of the banquet. And guess what? He invites you and me, people that can do nothing for him. A complete act of, of grace. We can't repay it. We don't deserve it, and still he offers it. And here's the good news. He said he wants a full house. Like, come on in. We want a full house. We want full tables. Everyone is invited. The invitation is open. And he sent you a personal invitation, your name on it. He knows your name. And he invites you to sit at the table. But he says, you got to get this right. The way up is to bow down. Bowing down makes things right between you and your heavenly father. So my question for you today is, have you made that choice? Will you be at the table? Have you had a time in, in your life where you submitted your heart to him? You committed your life to him. You trusted in him for the, the payment of, of your, your fine, the, the forgiveness of your sins. I'm not talking about just a magic prayer to pray. I'm talking about a heart posture, a decision you make to bow before him. Make him Lord of your life. Not just Savior. We all, we all want the Savior part. Yeah, Jesus, be my Savior. I want to be saved from, from eternity, separated from you. But how many of us want the Lord part? God, be Lord of my life. Be in the God seat of my life. I submit to you. That's called committing your life to Christ. That's called being born again. That's called having your sins forgiven. You're fine paid. If you're here and you haven't done that, I'm pleading with you. Listen, there's an expiration date on that invitation. One day it will be too late. Maybe God is trying to get your attention today to humble you before him so that you can see your need for a savior. Respond to him today. It's inevitable, humility. It's also essential. It's essential. Like, there is no following Jesus without humility. It's a must. 
So how, how do you do it? Like, how do you, how do you make sure you're walking in humility? Remember, we said it's, it's hard to see in yourself, right? So how do you do it? Listen, to live in humility, you have to live in light of the gospel. You have to live with the gospel in mind. That he did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. That he did for you what you couldn't earn, what you don't deserve, what you can't repay. You, you, you have to start each day with that realization. Because guess what? When, when you put yourself in your proper place and realize the grace he's shown to you, the only response you can have is to be humbled before him. Now you're in the right place to follow him. To worship him. The only boast we have is in the cross. We're nothing on our own. You look through scripture, anyone that was ever in the actual presence of God either died or fell on his face. That's who we're serving. That's who we're following. When you fully embrace the gospel of Jesus, the byproduct is humility. When you rightly view God in his holiness, you will be suddenly aware of your sinfulness. That's how it works. But the problem is you, you don't just drift into, into humility. That doesn't happen on accident. You have to do it on purpose. We, we drift into pride and selfishness. Why? Because that's our nature. That's our sin nature that we still have. And, and we read in Scripture about this war going on inside of us, right, where these two sides, your, your spirit and your sin nature are just constantly fighting each other. It, it's, it's a fight for your heart. And guess which side pride is on? Pride is the default. Like, we drift that way unless we work to not. Humility runs counter to the, the culture that we're in. Our, our, our culture wants to say, man, go for it. Whatever feels good, do it. You know what's best for you. Get what's yours, you know. Find yourself. Be true to yourself. Love yourself. Find your true self. Follow your heart. Here's, here's the problem with that. Your self is corrupted with sin. Why would you want to be true to that? The scripture tells us our, our hearts are deceitful above all things. We, we, we can't trust ourselves. Our, 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 our trust shouldn't be in ourselves. that's corrupted with sin. It's idolatry. Here's the lie. And you could be, you know, you can think of whatever you want of this, be mad at me or whatever. Here's the lie. I know who I am and I know what's best for me. No, you don't. You just don't. I don't. To be like Jesus is to walk in humility, to lay your ways down for his, period. That's what him being Lord of your life is all about. Here's another way to say it. You can't follow Jesus if you're on the throne. You can't follow Jesus if you're on the throne. It's impossible. Here's the way Robert Stein says it, theologian. He says, pride and arrogance are abominations before God. The great reversal, this Jesus, what he's doing to their, their little banquet here, should be understood as a rejection of the proud who exalt themselves in favor of those who humble themselves. To know God is to understand both his infinite greatness and our own impotence and sinfulness. Pride 
It is not possible under such circumstances. It's not possible. So when we rightly view God, it puts us in the place we need to be in. There is no room for pride in the church and the Christian. It stands in direct opposition to the very heart of God and the life and example of Jesus himself. A prideful Christian is one who's forgotten what they've been saved from, what they've been forgiven for. Jesus didn't say promote yourself. He said deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow him with, with no conditions, no caveats. Total surrender. It means being willing to walk away from anything and everything and anyone in your life that competes with him. He says, don't, don't promote yourself. Run, run to the last seat. You, you want to be great in God's kingdom? You want to be used in awesome ways to make a, a difference, to, to be honored by him someday? Grab a mop. Scrub a toilet. Serve people that can do nothing for you. That's the heart of Jesus. Stop chasing approval and applause and the stages and the lights and humble yourself. Serve someone, serve the least of these people that can't do anything in return, that can't repay you, where, where no one sees it. Do you know how many of our even good deeds are just like an extension of our own selfishness? It's scary to think about the things we do that are good, but we do with wrong motives. I mean, our hearts are wicked, guys. I mean, you know, the extreme of this is like the, the selfie with a homeless person you just helped. Like that, that's, kind of, that's kind of where even our good deeds live. This is, this is huge. Can you imagine if every Christian in our country lived this way? My goodness. E even if we just did, what kind of difference would we make in our, in, our, in our church, our community, our city, our schools? Finally, humility is an invitation. It's an invitation. Humility and repentance invite the presence of God into your life, into your marriage, into your family, into your church, into your workplace, into every relationship in your life. It's the only acceptable posture before your king. It gets you out of the way so you can experience him. Listen, he can't do a whole lot with a, a heart that's hardened with pride except to break it. How soft is your heart? Here's some tough questions. Do you want God in the middle of your marriage? Do you want him to, to work there, to move in your life, in your marriage? This is a quote from our re-engaged class. A quote from the book says, the purpose of marriage isn't happiness. It's holiness. Why? 
because we're called to love each other the way Christ loved us. That is a self-sacrificial, pride-swallowing kind of love that we're not capable of outside of him. The number one cause of your relationship problems probably isn't the other person. It probably isn't the circumstances. It's a good chance it's the, sin, the, the selfishness and the sinfulness of your own heart. That's true for all of us. A prideful spouse is insecure and small and selfish and petty. When was the last time you intentionally, on purpose, put uh, your spouse's needs before yours and just serve them instead of keeping score? When was the last time you were in a rush to apologize and say that you were wrong? In fact, when's the last time you ever said, I was wrong. What about your family? Those of you with kids. How many of us need a little humility in our parenting? You know what one of the biggest problems in your parenting probably is? Pride. Pride makes you angry, reactionary, impatient. A prideful parent's insecure and small and selfish. When was the last time you apologized to your kids for losing your temper? Reacting in anger, impatience, or frustration? Sounds kind of like me. While we're on the subject, guys, (laughs) you know, we're, we're probably more prone to this. As, as men, maybe that's why so many of us don't lead our family spiritually. Maybe that's why we struggle to, to model real trust in God, a soft heart towards him, any kind of affection towards him. Too proud. What about our church? A, a church full of people that are humbling themselves before God, dying to themselves, confessing their sin, their dependence on God. There's no limit to what God can do in and through them. No limit. That's one thing that keeps God from moving in our churches, pride. A prideful Christian is ineffective, insincere, uncompassionate, unmerciful, unlike Jesus. With a prideful Christian, there's no confession, no repentance, no heart broken over their own sin, no transformation. Clayton mentioned this last week. You've probably seen it all over everywhere, but Asbury College. There's been kind of a revival going on there for like 11 straight days. 12. You've probably seen some pictures like this. They just started showing up. God started moving. I want to read you a little bit of... um, this start, all started Wednesday, February 8th. This is from uh, Lee Grady. He's a Christian author and teacher. He's kind of some comments that he had about what he's seeing here. He says, there was nothing unusual about the 10 a.m. chapel service held at Asbury University on Wednesday, February 8th. Guest speaker, Zach Merkreebs, shared a message from Romans 12 about demonstrating God's love. And the last thing he said in his closing prayer was, revive us by your love. Whoever was videotaping the service stopped recording. 
But eyewitnesses say that students began going to the altar, confessing their sins after the sermon. Then students who left came back to worship. The praise team kept going. More students arrived. By the evening, it became obvious that something out of the ordinary was happening. Continuous prayer, worship, and testimonies marked the next few days. There were no famous speakers, no celebrity worship bands. In fact, I've heard they, they, they intentionally keep it simple. It's like a piano and a guitar. Reverent worship. Nothing fancy about the building. Yet so many people began to flock to the Asbury campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. The school had to open two additional overflow auditoriums. By Saturday, students from over 20 campuses had visited the meetings because they hoped to take that revival spirit back to their schools. Later in the weekend, get this, a pastor who visited Asbury said, the carpet near the stage in Hughes Auditorium was literally damp from tears. He says, the Lord is calling his church back to humility and brokenness. Back to holiness. That's where his presence lives. This is the picture of humility before God. That's what it looks like. Bowing the knee. Surrendering yourself. Confessing sin. Having a heart that's right with God. I know this is, this is heavy, you know. But, but I'm inviting you as we close this service, just do a heart check, you know? Like, be willing to ask God, well, what is it in me? Like, say, say like David, search my heart. Search me in the, the innermost places and point out anything in me that offends you. And I wanna take some time to do that right now. So if you were to bow your heads and just ask him. Search your heart, expose any roots of pride. What does the, the fruit of your life say about your heart? How many things in your life do you put before him when it comes to your time or your energy or your money? Would people around you, would those in your life that know you the very best say that you are growing in humility? Have you been impatient, short-tempered? Does it take you a long time to apologize, if, if ever? When was the last time you said these words, I was wrong, you were right? Do you hold grudges, unforgiveness? Are you easily offended? Do you get defensive when someone challenges you? These are all symptoms. These are all fruit of that root of pride. God, we just, we confess our need for you. God, we don't have it all figured out. We don't have all the answers. And I know I'm guilty of pretending like I do. So God, I, I pray that you would teach us day by day to, to wake up every morning just, 
just renewing our, our minds in the truth of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that we owe him everything. God, help us to walk in, in humility. Let, let it show in the fruits of our lives and in our, in our actions. We know that when there's a heart change, it, it, it works from the inside out. So, so I'm not talking about curbed behavior. God, we want heart change. Make us more like you, Jesus, in our relationships, in our businesses, in our marriages, in our families, in this church. God, help us to live in a way for, for your glory where we don't care who gets the credit. And we're not seeking some kind of self-promotion. God, we just, we just wanna be faithful to you. And we want to serve and love people that can do nothing for us where, where no one sees it. That, that's, that's the true heart of Jesus, the true heart of humility. And that's what we're after, God. So, so do, do a miracle in us. I know I have a, so long to go. And it's so easy for that, that root of pride to kind of keep popping up and showing, showing its, its ugly face in my life. But, but I pray that if that happens, I would be quick to see it to be convicted by it, to repent of it. God, make us more like you.